That's, says, that's a way to put a Conan spin on a D&D game, isn't it? Yeah. Whoever, <laughs> whoever dies first wins. How about that? <laughs> well, no, because now you want to play Wizard. <laughs> My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. It is a new episode of the Design Games Podcast. What are we going to talk about this time? Tell me that it's a question from the Google Plus community. We do have another topic coming from the community, aligning player and character roles and the dynamics and character development possibilities therein. Nathan here. Due to a recording error, we lost the first couple of minutes of this episode. So here's the comment we're responding to. Philip Wessels, apologies if I pronounced that wrong, left us a comment on one topic that we should address which is multiplayer slash PVP slash co-op slash collaboration. Systems and mechanics which bring players together and encourage them to engage each other, while also adding character development. Will and I agree that we've tended to frame our topics through characters acting as groups. So Will's going to start us off by breaking down the difference between PVP and PVE dynamics. There's a certain amount of automated assumptions that go on about phrases like PvP and PvE, which are largely inherited from other media, from video games or, or board games. And to just real quick, right, PvP mm-hmm. is player versus player, and that's where, in general, there is a victor. Even if that victor is very, very short and it's the best three out of five or something, player versus player presumes that the players are... Uh, whether they're battling for points or they're battling to win a battle or they're battling for prestige or status, whatever it is, but the players are against each other. And even if they might team up, if it might be two teams of players, whatever the point is that they're pointed or, as you say, facing each other. PVE comes from the statement for player versus environment, which is kind of the classic D&D mode, which suggests that all the players are broadly or kind of back-to-back facing the universe, that they're out mm-hmm. facing the world and they're out getting the XP and the bonuses and the points or the prestige or whatever it is by battling monsters or the environment. And the monsters are considered part of the environment in this case because they are automated or they are NPCs. This this would presume that the DM in a, in a tabletop RPG were kind of the portrayer or player of the game world of right. everything but the players. This I think this also touches back on um, when we were talking about antagonism. Yeah. Um, how this these two conversations kind of are together where if the DM or GM singular is providing all of the antagonism right that kind of implies a a unified party while if the characters or the players are tasked with providing antagonism for each other whether there's a gm role or not then that starts to imply a, a player versus player dynamic right and, th- and that in itself is one of those things that i think is both true and i don't want to say it's completely presumption because it's a safe one. But I think it's the kind of thing that, that I suspect that there is a game within the next you know calendar year to five years, whatever, that it's going to, especially in the RPG space, throw some of this on its head in a way that RPGs frequently can because it's easy to just kind of communicate, hey, players, if this happens, suddenly one of you becomes the traitor or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a way that video games have to code. And mm-hmm. all these uh, statements that we're making already, just to make sure we say this early, is... They're all ready for remixing and for yes. readaptation and, and reinterpretation. Yeah, these are things that are relatively easy to subvert. Yeah. I think like board games do this. Have There's a whole genre of board game with like the Traitor, the Hidden, right. like the Battlestar Galactica game or uh, Shadow, Shadow Over Camelot. Yeah. Where, you know, you think that everyone is on the same side, but then someone is actually secretly working against everyone else. Right. So there's actually a game state switch where there's a reveal of, you know, whether they were successful in, you know, executing the whatever their their betrayal plan was or not. And that kind of asymmetrical PvP in which all the players are on one team except for one, and that mm-hmm. player may have a lot of power because we don't know which one of them has all that power. There's actually uh, one of those things that I'm, I'm hoping to see more of in tabletop RPGs, but that, that is done just a little bit 
right now in video games too is a game like Evolve where there is one monster that mm-hmm. is a giant kaiju-sized monster. Uh, it's actually not that big, but there are several big monsters. And then all the other players are hunting that monster. And so it's asymmetrical PvP in a similar way, except that we know from the outset who's the monster mm-hmm. <laughs> and who's on the side of the hunters. Mm-hmm. But it has that, what would be a very natural translation to the table where you have one player portrays all the animals. Everybody else plays an individual, each plays an individual hunter. We actually can see that too in um, games that have adapted tabletop to video games like Vampire Bloodlines and Neverwinter Nights that have a DM role sometimes that a DM can plug in or can automate processes or things like that so that you don't necessarily know where the DM is at any moment depending on the version of the game you're playing, but you know that they've kind of decided which monsters are in which room and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, tabletop becomes in many ways one of the most flexible versions of this. But one of the things that it shows is the spectrum where you can say that while you've got PvP here and maybe PvE on the other end, although Mm -hmm. I suspect the spectrum proceeds in both directions still further, in between them it's not a matter of that you have only three states to choose from. There's lots of stuff where if you nudge it this way, mm-hmm. the DM is still kind of like an antagonist, but doesn't have DM or GM level powers. They're just, they play one giant monster when that monster is beaten. That's that's how we know the scenario is over or whatever, that kind of a thing. Right. So there's lots of ways that we to riff and, and reevaluate and question and subvert and change the structure of these. Otherwise, I mean, perfectly healthy and perfectly useful presumptions because sometimes there's still a lot of juice in the notion of PvP and PvE. And, yeah. and frankly, I would say that I would point out that I've had a lot of D&D camp campaigns that start off with the assumption of PvE, of the players as a team, and don't stay that way, or become briefly PvP when they fight over treasure, or they fight over what adventure to undertake, or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not necessarily by game. I think that's one of the strengths of the role-playing medium, as opposed to these other mediums on the spectrum, where you can actually transition through these different ways to arrange the players and their characters and their agendas and what they're trying to get even in one session of play, let alone over the arc of a game. There are games that are more on the fixed competition. Players are competing to earn some kind of win condition, Mm -hmm. uh, which if you kind of extend the logic out far enough, turns into straight up board games and and war games where it's a zero sum mechanical situation and one person is going to win and everyone else is going to lose. But pulling it back into the role playing space, there are a lot of games that have a win condition like in um, Aegon. That's what I was thinking Um, too, yeah. Aegon is a, ga- is a game by John Harper. You play Greek mythic heroes going on the, the quest to find the Golden Fleece and that yeah. kind of thing, you know, which I think is very intentionally presenting itself as a player versus player competitive game. But it kind of has an oscillation. The characters are competing to gain the most glory. If you're playing the full epic length game, then there's a number of cycles that can kind of add up to whoever is the winner, but there is a winner. Or if you're playing a single session game, then it's basically like whoever has the most glory, which is a metric at the end, wins. You know, you're the most glorious, most remembered hero. It has a really fascinating uh, setup between how damage is dealt versus like the fact that dealing damage to a giant boar or whatever, or to mm-hmm. the bull of heaven, is good to do, but mm-hmm. the killing blow is worth the most glory. Right, yeah. So there's a certain tactical cooperation right. so that I will win, you even want though we be, are cooperating against this monster. Right. Even if someone else is better at dealing damage, if you're better at swooping in to get the final blow, you're going to end up with more glory. Right. Right. So in combats, you're all working together to defeat the enemies, the skeletons or the boar or the, yeah. the, the cyclops or whatever. So the game isn't set up where it's PvP in the sense that the characters are trying to defeat each other. Uh, you need to work together in order to defeat the mythic creatures that are in the way of you and your quest. Whoever does that the best is the one who wins the game. Right. But you can't do it alone. 
Right. And then there's another and then there's a non-combat system for for scenes where you're telling tales and boasting and challenging each other. That's where it's like actually PVP, like let's have a foot race. Right. I'm better at running than your character. So I'm going to challenge you to a foot race and gain more glory from winning this foot race because it's going to be become part of our epic saga. And then you might be better than me at javelins. So then you're going to challenge me to a javelin throwing competition or or whatever. Right. And it's interesting to note, not only in the way that Aegon is built, but just in the way that systems that are similarly built in other RPGs can yield systems that are or, or dynamics that are similar. For example, in Aegon, because it's almost all dice and almost not at all modifiers, as I recall, even though I'm better at the foot race or you're better at the foot race and I'm better at javelins or whatever it is, it's not a sure thing. Yeah. It's, it's close, but... Yeah, it's rarely a sure thing. Yeah. Upsets upsets happen. Yeah. And so I might challenge you to do a foot race and then it might become a tale of my own hubris in which right. you beat me at the foot race. And you can get help from other people. Yeah. So like I can be like, sure, I'll do your foot race. Like, hey, Agamemnon, help me out here. And then the two of us share the glory for beating you. Right. Because you didn't expect this other thing to happen or, or whatever. And so if you consider how, the, how uncertainty affects that dynamic, it means that the PvP system is not a hard and fast PvP system in the sense of I win foot races. It is a mm-hmm. it is a broader, fuzzier, in a great way system in which I have a better chance at winning foot races, but it's not like the outcomes are so hard-coded because I am better at XYZ. So yeah. for example, what I always think of is are any game that have XP systems that can become PvP systems or that defy the PvE system. Okay, so you each get XP for the number of skeletons you killed, or you each get XP for the sessions you can make, or... If your character dies, you come in as a starting character. These kinds of things often lead to a kind of competitive PvP dynamic, even if that's not their design, even if that's not their intent. Well, I think that's kind of an emergent thing that you see in games when players see the payouts for certain things, you know, experience-wise or whatever it is. If, If one person sees it and the others don't necessarily, whether they don't care or whether it's not important to their experience of the game or whether they literally don't see the connection between like Ganagon, like if you if you for whatever reason just didn't care about the glory mechanic, right? Like right. you were more about like, oh I'm gonna I'm gonna be this great storyteller character. The value that you're getting out of the game is playing that character and someone else is sitting there going like, oh if I get the killing blow, then I get the most glory. So I'm gonna make I'm gonna optimize my character to do that. And then when you play together, that person ends up winning. There's not that sense of competition right. can kind of not be there. I'm kind of spinning out an example that's the opposite direction of what you were saying, but I think it's illustrative. If only one person cares about winning, that can be a big dynamic shift. If the game is about winning, that's one thing. If the game is not about winning, but there is a mechanical way that makes one person much more effective that they capitalize on and other people don't, that can take the game in a PvP direction that it was not intended in the first place. And that's exactly, that's where I was headed is that when you have that breadth to the mechanics mm-hmm. where if winning is not necessarily required to play the game or caring about winning is not required in order to have a good experience. For example, uh, at the most furthest end of the spectrum, Monopoly is about winning. I don't ever win Monopoly and I'm fine with that because my goal when I play Monopoly is to come in second. I want to play Kingmaker. I don't want to just sit there and spin out the last couple of rounds of Monopoly, which can take hours whatever until we find out who actually won what i want to do is get to the point where i can say okay well i'm going to sell all my stuff to the person and that will make them the winner sure right at the end so do well enough that i can kind of influence that ending because then also it it definitively ends the game without taking forever and i don't know where i got into this habit of of doing that but monopoly is not built to reward me for doing that but it also doesn't have any mechanisms in it that necessarily mean that i can't strap that on Monopoly Mm -hmm. and get that experience out of it. Now, that's a very obviously contrarian and kind of crass example of that in action. But when you take it to something like an RPG in which the experience really is 
a valid and an important part of the experience, right. not just the destination. If we're playing Aegon and we've all decided, let's play Aegon, but we're going to make Nathan win. Mm-hmm. We want Nathan's character to have all the glory. Yeah. Right? We could still have a great, fun experience with Aegon, even though we have kind of hotwired it. Yeah. We're, in a way, not necessarily playing in the spirit of the game, right. even if we're obeying the rules, right? Because we're making player decisions to ignore optimal paths for our character. Or to just not even, if, even if we say, look, we know that we've, we've all established from the way we built our characters that, that, that Will and Nathan's characters are probably not going to get the most glory. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make them great storytellers. We're going to yeah. play them as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or whatever. And now we'll find out who else, mm-hmm. right? And we just kind of quietly have that as part yeah. of our character concept. So I think on the design level, this gets back to at the table, obviously your game is going to be changed to suit the players and, and what they want to get out of it. But when you're designing the game, I think, yeah, it's one of those kind of classic, do you design in options for different ways to approach the game? Or do you say, no, this is the game. And if you want to do something else with it, that's on you. And I'm not saying you can't or that it's going to break or any of that stuff. Right. But like Aegon doesn't say like, oh, if you want to play in like right. storytelling mode, here's how to do it. Aegon just gives you, this is it. Here's the rules. Here's how you win. Go kill some some Cyclops. And then if we change it, that's on us to decide that we aren't as interested in the competitive aspect. To me, there are two big levels on which that question gets answered. See back to the question of how is your game about what it's about. Mm-hmm. Agon is or Agon is about what it's about by saying there is a winner. The game doesn't come with a trophy, right? Mm-hmm. There's no actual thing other than winning. And like a lot of board games, it's the same way, right? Is that that just tells you how to stop playing. Yeah. And that's great. And it's totally valid. Um, and it, when it works, it works. But the thing is that because Agon is not a board game per se, because of the medium that it's chosen, it is extremely susceptible to hacking and drifting in a way that some board games are not. So there are two big choices, I think, that define how we interact with and how that stuff does actually emerge. One of them is the medium that you chose. If we made an RPG, we made an RPG. And those are often, but not always, deeply susceptible to, I choose to turn this non-expressive engine into an expressive engine by by subverting it myself at the table or mm-hmm. reverting it or hacking it and drifting it at the table. The other version of that is how the game is about it, which is the Agon as a game offers you no concessions. There's a winner. This person has the most glory. If the game were to hedge its bets or were to say or to offer more options to, to hack mm-hmm. it, or for example, the fact that the XP systems in other games are not expressly about trying to develop an emergent system in which a winner will emerge. Let's say it's a level-based game, it's Rifts or it's D&D or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but something that has higher numbers is better. Yeah. And well, my character's level 20, and your character's level three because you died five times and now you're back to a starting level character. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. None of these games do anything to say, therefore, that this character is not winning. Right. But neither do they do anything to counterbalance that and say all characters are still heroes who the land sees in the following ways, whatever. Right. Yeah. In this case, and so that's how the game is about. There's, it. there's, yeah, there's a natural kind of inclination in a, in a horse race situation, right? Like whoever has the most whatever is in the lead. Right. Right. If it's the most XP or the the highest level or whatever and that can be a fun functional thing where it's like oh will you're ahead of me in xp because you keep on doing this cool thing that your character was built to do using your your dual wielding feet build really well (laughs) to kill all these monsters so then we can have like a friendly competition of like well i just took this feat that lets me explode extra fireballs so i'm gonna kill more monsters than you next adventure right well and consider for example a game right in which the monster is worth experience points regardless of how it is defeated versus a game in which Mm -hmm. monsters or kills are worth experience points or 
talking and role-playing scenes are, are expressly never worth experience points. We can kind of understand how especially, let's say, new RPG players or very casual RPG players might fall into something like that, just where they go, where they forget on a given session to dole out cool XP for whatever. Yeah. But now invert that and consider what happens if you have a game in which killing is never worth XP. The number of people alive at the end of the session is the, determines the experience points. So the more peace you can make, the more alignment changes you can make, the more alignments you can know and bridges you can build, the better the XP everybody gets. That is an implicit statement that we're often explicit that will develop into an emergent system that says, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill everything. Mm -hmm. In a game that is essentially agnostic to that, mm -hmm. those same, I think, emergent properties will develop, but they will develop from something else. They will develop from the table dynamic. They will yeah. develop from the fact that higher number levels are more powerful, mm -hmm. from the fact that the tiers are called epic as opposed to called, you mm -hmm. know, better. Or imagine just a game that goes heroic paragon epic versus heroic paragon tyrant. Sure. It's saying something. Yeah. At the one end of the spectrum, there's the board games, and then you pull it back a little bit, and you have games like like Rune or, or Aegon. And I think a number of games, especially out of competitions, end up having some kind of either victory condition or win condition, mm -hmm. whether it's but it's cast as like a narrative win, like there or whoever ends the game with the highest like hope score, you yeah. know, their character ends up having an epilogue that is the most uplifting and positive, right? That kind of thing. So you know, I have games that are like that where there's some kind of metric that when the game ends, then implies or describes the state of the character going forward um, in like this fictional space. Right. And then there's kind of clearly a, well, you want to get a high number or you want to get the most tokens or whatever of this thing. Or you can be like, that's not what I want for the character and you can drive for the opposite. Right. So there's a, right. But that's still a kind of set mechanical win that, you know, might, might be binary or trinary or, or something. But then I think the vast middle of the role-playing game space is one in which your characters can be working together and the players can be working together. Or I think this is the kind of game that I play the most and that I, I have the most experience with and generally tend to enjoy is where the players are working together, but the characters are aligned against each other. Right. Whether formally, like we're on opposite sides and we're trying to beat each other at a thing. Or whether it's a more messy, like relationship derived kind of thing, where mm -hmm. as a player, I want to serve, I want my character to serve as a foil for your character because you've done all this cool stuff with your character, and my character has these weird things going on, and their conflict is what's going to generate compelling play. Right. So as players, we're working together so that our characters are at loggerheads or right. you know, whatever. One of the examples of that I love is again is about how if the notion is that the characters all want to save this planet and they just can't decide how to do it. Mm -hmm. You still have a, an end game condition, which is the planet is saved or dies, or the city is saved or dies, or the kitten is saved or dies, or whatever it is. And then maybe there isn't, maybe the game doesn't have a victory condition beyond that in terms of who was the MVP, but there might be a conversation at the end that isn't necessarily ranking it, right? And that's what I love this moment is, is the cool down at the end of a game when you have people saying, man, I totally thought your character was going to get us killed. Mm -hmm. Or man, I totally love how you made her success possible. And that scene where the two of you played where I wasn't sure if, if you were going to team up or not and I thought we were going to lose the whole planet that was intense right and so now we get into a question in part of how that dynamic can interact with things like the stakes of the game and mm -hmm. how the game is about an end game in a way that isn't like necessarily pass fail even games that have an, an end game that is essentially fixed mm -hmm. or is very nearly the same every time and the how is really the journey is really mm -hmm. the question and so that player to character relationship which is absolutely something that I always love is that notion of when the players and the characters don't necessarily completely agree or when players think this scene needs somebody to take up this mantle 
and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I, me as a player, I'm enthusiastic to do it, but my character's kind of like, oh, this is a terrible idea. And the other aspect of this is the game where you want your character to fail or the, the joy of the game is setting up the poor choices that you're, I mean, this is kind of stock fiasco is built on, right? Your characters are flawed and make bad choices and the joy of the game is going past the logical extent and into the melodramatic results so that victory condition becomes a misnomer yeah yeah and that game has an end has end states right that are primed by the events of the game and kind of give you a capstone little finish onto the story of the character and those kind of scale the biggest numbers you get so the most dice of a single type that you oh yeah a single yeah will detail will kind of get you the the most positive or victorious or gloatable results right but part of what's interesting about that is is that not only is it about how the result that you got aligns with the fiction that you wrote beforehand because the results mm-hmm. are fixed. The results are essentially digital, but they're on a, there's 12 of them. Yeah. And the fiction is completely analog. There's a completely just fluid dynamic of how what can happen in the fiction and where you check in and how you find out how they inter- interrelate is part of the question the game is answering differently every time. But that notion of whether or not the victory condition is actually victory or the end game is actually win or, win or, sure. win or lose. Yeah, in that same yeah. way, I think is super important, especially because Fiasco, despite its name, despite how aggressively Fiasco is about what it's about, it is still a story game in the sense, or, a, or an RPG in the sense that you can roll your own. You can come in with your own little goal, which is I want to just kind of sneak, I want to be Steve Buscemi in, in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. So that we don't actually know, all we know is that I leave the building and we're not entirely sure what happens to me after that, but I'm the guy who sees through all this stuff and says, I don't want any of your bull. Right. I want to slip through this, right? And that's not necessarily something that Fiasco inherently rewards or discourages. Mm-hmm. It's definitely in genre, but that ability to come in and say, I want to play the storyteller in Aegon. I want to play Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dogs and Fiasco. I want to do these kinds of things is inherent to the medium to me mm-hmm. in a way that means that if you're making an RPG and you're trying to pretend like that's not going to be viable, yeah, then there's an extent to which you are kind of not fully confronting or fully harnessing your medium. Sometimes ignoring it and just saying, look, this game is going to say and is going to support a specific style yeah. of play is the way to do that. I mean, you can, I think most games, right, are agnostic to that. If you have a player-generated goal in this game, that doesn't expressly like break the kind of social contract of play or expressly drive against what the game is about, right? I'm going to play the wizard who doesn't want to go on the adventure. I'm just going right. to sit in my tower and be mad that no one is talking to me while you all go slay the dragon. That's kind of having a player goal that's kind of contrary to the spirit of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. But if you play the wizard who's like, I actually don't care about gaining more spells. I'll level up whenever I level up and that's great. But I want to like play this smarmy, conniving character mm-hmm. that is trying to, I don't know, build a information network throughout the kingdom and recruit people that I meet into my like little, little right. coterie. Oh, every so often I'll gain some new spells and that's cool, but that's actually not my main goal for the game. I'm going to play a wizard, but I don't give a damn what those numbers say. Yeah. I just ignore the d20. That's genuinely cheating. That's the most obvious example of not honoring what the game is about. Sure. And this is where I would have a better example if I really actually knew comics at all. But for the sake of argument, is this a game where everyone's at the academy Mm -hmm. and then there is a threat out somewhere in the world and Professor X calls you together and sends you out and you go deal with the threat and you come back. And Logan, while he complains about all the stuff, he still shows up and goes and does his thing and comes back. Or is this the X-Men game where each individual character is kind of shunned and alienated because of the nature of their power and you aren't necessarily all in the same story at the same time and the game is actually one of interleaved 
single mm-hmm. protagonist stories that have thematic resonance with, with each other. And then gameplay is shotgun of, of individual scene, individual scene, individual scene right. cut together in order to create this like X-Men world that everyone is in as they like deal with their powers. As or a, as, yeah, an ensemble of lone characters. Right. Or I mean, and games do that. Sorcerer, Ron Underwood Sorcerer, and this was, a, I think, a great innovation in it at the time. Sorcerers are by their nature alien to the world. That's why there's a demon that they can talk to and get their power from or whatever. And then gameplay, I wouldn't say breaks down, that's not the right word, but when people come to the game and go like, all right, all of our sorcerers are characters who are together right? and we are going to go out and do a thing. That's actually the harder way to play that game. The game on its face is actually much easier to play, in my experience and understanding, as a interleaving series of stories right. where you'll come together eventually, probably, but you're united by the relationship map that is kind of bridging your individual characters. Mm-hmm. It's not that me and you both know each other and we like perform sorcerous rituals together and now we're going to go try and take over the universe or something. It's more like after a session of play, our paths cross and we have a moment right. and then our stories continue on and they're different, you know, on their different metrics and then they come back and it's all united by the uh, the other characters and the thematic resonance between our stories. Right. Yeah, that thematic cohesion, that aspect by which it overrides and runs contrary to the notion of the, the classic mantra, do not split the parties. Mm-hmm. Great example of something that is definitely true but not a rule in something in a game that is about a party right but it is not sacrosanct and i played games like in vampire where people say don't split the party and i'm like Mm -hmm. well this isn't really that kind of game we can you guys can go off and do whatever you want and we'll just you just have to be a little bit patient as we do the sorcerer approach right to thematically interleaving these stories and then you'll rendezvous again or we'll have scenes three out of the four of you Mm -hmm. and then the and then a different three out of the four of you or whatever um and it was always one of my big uh, lamentations or uh, outright regrets about certain aspects of requiem was that we didn't have mechanized process Processes for dealing with what the game is about when the characters are not truly unified, when yeah. they don't have a shared goal or a shared vision. Or for that matter, we didn't really have a mechanism for how do you give them a shared objective. Yeah. We had cultural aspects of the coterie and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things that Requiem Chronicler's Guide was designed to do was to find out ways to support, to put pillars underneath either mode of play so that you could more expressly say in this campaign do not split the party. Mm-hmm. In this chronicle, go ahead and split the party. And that it was more textual rather than subtextual. A lot of team-based games, they can have dynamics, but they don't have, like, for example, we built for Feng Shui in the first edition a thing that literally gave the group abilities that none of the individual characters sure, had. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like the van. Mm-hmm. That's a classic example, right? It's that, sure, somebody could drive the van around, mm-hmm. but you can't get the most out of the van unless you have multiple people in the van. Mm-hmm. And then it's your A-team van or your Scooby gang van or whatever, and it does cool stuff. Or you have cool things that you can do when you bring together the bruiser and the wizard. Yeah. Okay. So most games don't actually have those kind of dynamics set mm-hmm. up in them, even though they claim to be about whatever group of players is about is present at the table. Right. Instead, what they are is they are cultural underpinnings, either at the table or in the game world, or they are natural niches. We talk about niche protection all the time, where the notion is, let the wizard be the wizard, let the rogue be the rogue, don't tread on each other's territory too much, support each other, let each other shine, that kind of stuff, which is great, but it's Mm. only one way to do it. You know, it's the uh, combined arms kind Mm -hmm. of phenomenon, right? Where if you have a bunch of characters that have a whole bunch of different abilities, then when they're together, they can address greater threats than any one of them can address by themselves. Or if they all have the same ability, that's like that group is less effective than a group that has a diverse set of abilities right. in certain circumstances. But then when you, if you design in dynamics that trigger upon this group coming together, mm-hmm. I think like a Voltron effect, right? Where all of you together and you all, you know, transform into 
your 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 final battle form, right. then you're unstoppable. Like that kind of um, dynamic is something that could amp up this idea of of cooperation, yeah, and cooperation and, yeah. and camaraderie. And I think that that spins out into the same notion again of when we talk about how the game is about it. If you don't have those mechanisms, and there are very sound reasons not to have them, obviously, but then you want the fiction can contribute to the design of arguing that people should be in a group or not be in a group, that they should do play the game the way the GM or the designer, rather, in some cases, wants or encourages the game to be played. But the other thing is there's just the text of the rules themselves. You can say it is a rule that the GM only portrays and puts on, quote unquote, on stage the largest group of player characters at any one time. Mm-hmm. So if you have five players and three of them are together, the other two will go off stage and then they will just decide this is what I was doing and they will come, and we will see them yeah. again when they come back on stage and that is how the game works. That policy, that procedure may be as mechanically deep as the game gets into it for example. That's still design. It's right. still a choice. Yeah. But it's not necessarily fictional. Mm-hmm. It's not like they cease to it's not like they go out of the matrix and then come back. <laughs> it's a portrayal choice and it might be said from the designer to the GM to the players as opposed to expressed through the mountains and rivers and streams of the game world or through the mechanics themselves. Mm-hmm. So part of this question is about how the different player arrangements to each other can affect or encourage character development. Yeah. Which, again, is a strength of the role-playing medium where there are characters and we get to see them develop in real time and emergent out of the fiction as opposed to a board game where maybe there's like a fictional layer but they're not really characters in that sense or a video game where the characters may have a suite of potential areas in which to develop but they're already programmed by the time you start mm-hmm. playing the game. The first place to me, not, not necessarily in design but for us right now in this conversation is to go back and define to make sure that we are that we have defined for everybody listening what we mean when we say foil mm-hmm. because that's to me one of the fundamental not only tools but misunderstood tools foil is one of those terms that I think that is great and it's a absolutely something that is super valuable in play and therefore cultivatable and powerable through design but that a lot of players don't necessarily realize they're doing it when they're mm. doing it it's not like plot or arc sure it's one of those terms that gets well, used the same so way. go ahead and go ahead and tell me what foil means to you because i feel like it's something that i use without having really previously defined it for myself so. okay foil is a verb and foil as a noun mean two very different things foil as a verb means to thwart to foil somebody's plot. And that's a classic, we foiled the plot of, of the bank robbers. Mm-hmm. And what that does, I think, I, and I don't know that this is true, I'm not looking this up right now, but is that I think that, that that emerges from a notion, this is where they overlap, is that in order to foil a plot, you also kind of reveal it. You say, okay, mm-hmm. well, we established they were going to try to tunnel in from the butcher shop across the street, but we have foiled the plot. We have revealed it. We now understand how it was going to work and we put a stop. We decided if it was going to go ahead or not, and of course we decided it wasn't. Foil as a noun is a person who reveals, reflects, or otherwise helps to enlighten or shine a revealing light on another character. So mm, a foil mm-hmm. is Watson is a foil for Holmes in that if Watson were a character who wasn't fascinated by Holmes or wasn't interested in why Holmes is the way he was or thought just like Holmes they wouldn't reveal each other. They would barely talk and we wouldn't get much conversation and they would just come in and go what do you think? The window? Yeah the window. All right, well, we're done. But because Watson wants to ask Holmes questions and he wants to understand how Holmes works, foil doesn't mean below, right? You can have foils that are right. parallel, foils that are uh, socially above but fictionally below or, or fictionally above, but like the, the police captain is often a foil. Um, but almost any time a character asks another character, why are you doing this? Sure. What's your motivation? They're being a foil for that other character. And that's almost never that obvious, mm-hmm. but that is often part of the dynamic. Mm, yeah, I think my assumption when I use the word is a slightly more adversarial role mm-hmm. where like if I am, 
your foil, then I'm, if not your enemy, my interests are contrary to your interests. Right. And thus we are going to have some kind of conflict. Right. Without necessarily being like a duel to the death. Right. right. But I think the essential point that you're saying, which is very good for me to hear, is the interesting thing that comes out of my interest being opposed to your interest is that when they come into conflict, we find out more about your interest. Right. Right. And so I don't necessarily need to be so adversarial if the character relationship is Holmes Watson and I can just ask you. Right. But if the character dynamic is Holmes Moriarty, then I find out more by actually like taking action to stop you or by presenting this puzzle that I'm like, you will never be able to figure this out because I am smarter than you. Right. And then Holmes is serving as a full of Moriarty in a way being like, oh, it's very important to him to be smarter than everyone else. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Holmes, Holmes is a great example, as, as is so often the case, because almost every character that recurs and many that do not are foils for Holmes mm-hmm. and often foils for each other. But Moriarty is a foil for Holmes in a similar way. And I think statistically, it's probably true that most in actual fiction and actual ongoing fiction, most foils probably are adversarial. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the, the, the more obvious ways to set up that dynamic. Well, right. And it's a way to make sure that the villain and the hero have a relationship that is more interesting than, than a random cop and a random jewel thief. The other kind of implication to me of the foil is it's not like the uh, the big bad or the villain in the sense that we can have kind of X number of heroes and then there is a villain or X, right. X number of villains. But it's almost everyone can potentially have a different foil for that character. Right. And maybe the same character is Moriarty can be the foil for both Holmes and Watson. Right. Or, you know, Watson has his own foil and Holmes has his yeah. own foil that may interleave maybe the same character, maybe different characters. When you're constructing a game, I think the idea of having some kind of opposition or foil or antagonism for an individual character that is designed to highlight why that character is cool, what their Mm -hmm. background is, what their special skills are. I think it's something that we see in a lot of GM advice that is applicable to be a, a really fruitful area of design. You know, what do you do when, if you're playing a lawful good character, then someone else at the table needs to play a chaotic good character in order that there's a, you know, that there, that this philosophical conflict comes about right. or something like that, right? That's a kind of off-the-cuff example, but you could code in some kind of, if Will wants to play a character about this, yeah. you know, here's how to make a foil that validates Will's character choice, right? That gives you an opportunity to say, oh, let me really express this idea of my character in play. And it means that both of you are helping in the portrayal of the character, which also means that you can both be helping each other in the portrayal of each other's characters, Mm -hmm. right? Because the two big things to me is, one is across all kind of fictional play, whether it's, again, theater or RPGs or whatever. Very often, foil is a character's whole job, but it doesn't have to be that way. Similarly, the fact that in a scene, you can have an antagonist and protagonist who may not be the antagonist and protagonist of the story. Mm. You can have somebody who's a foil in a given scene. That's a super viable thing as playcraft and then to think about in design, where the idea is... Not necessarily that I have to just make a Watson or I make a Lestrade, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's just an occasional, you know, pop in and be humiliated by Holmes. But is that in this scene, a scene where I otherwise feel like I'm, I have nothing to do. I'm a rogue in a wizard's castle or I'm a mm-hmm. wizard in a den of traps or whatever it is, right? Where I otherwise feel like, well, I'm just waiting my turn. Being a foil is a fruitful way that you can get involved 
without necessarily trying to trump somebody or, or steal their niche mm -hmm. or redraw all of that attention. Right. On the design level, I think what you need to do if you're constructing a game where you want these dynamic character relationships to happen is make sure that when someone is being a foil, they're not either interrupting or breaking the flow of the game and that they're not putting themselves at some kind of mechanical disadvantage or taking over maybe this harder antagonist role that is right. what you're all responding to, right? If we're playing you know, this adventure game and we're in the, the Den of Thieves and all the Thievey characters are doing stuff and I'm the wizard who doesn't have anything to do on the mechanical level, jumping in and trying to serve as a foil to the trap master thief that is solving the problem right now mm -hmm. may not be fun, right? right. Like that can destroy the, the flow of the game in that moment. And if the tools that you have to do that are like interrupt, use some kind of ability that gives them a negative on their die roll, <laughs> like, right, right, you right. know, like that kind of stuff that may not serve that dynamic in the same way that right. having some kind of role where it's like maybe like, oh, okay, I get to, just as a character, I'm going to keep up this patter about them and then they get to turn to me and, and, and show off how they disarm this trap. I'm thinking in, in Apocalypse World how there's the help interfere move. Mm -hmm. So you can either help someone or interfere with them. The mechanics rely on your, your um, history with each other, which is a stat. So someone that you know well, you can help or you can interfere with, right? It gives you ability to do both, which is great yeah the interfere move has a, a larger effect than the help move it gives you a minus two as opposed to giving a plus one in that game the dial of characters working together to characters <laughs> fighting against each other right like there's a lot of settings on yeah. that dial in that game yeah but what that does what that mechanic does is kind of put a thumb on the scale and say it's slightly more effective to interfere with someone than it is to help them so if someone's doing something that you do not want them to succeed at, here's a mechanical way to do that. Right. And that relies on how much history we have with each other. So if I know you better, I can mess with you more. It doesn't dictate, but it does suggest heavily in play right. that the characters, whether they start working together or not, eventually there are going to be some kind of conflicts of interest and the characters are going to end up having some kind of conflict amongst themselves, even as the players were all working together to have mm -hmm. an enjoyable game and explore this post-apocalyptic world and pursue our character goals and all that stuff. That even if the game weren't didn't have its emphasis on the apocalypse and how things are frankly horrible, mm -hmm. um, if, it was, if it were called survival world or second chance world or something, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that even if you never engage, and this is my, my experience with the apocalypse world, that you never actually engage the interfere move, mm -hmm. the temptation of it is still always real. Yeah. Right? That, yeah, that, I, that, that, that effect it has on the theme mm -hmm. of the game, on what the game is about, and on how the relationship works between helping and interfering is always true. In my play, I, I don't see the interfere move very much. Yeah. But once you see it happen once, and you realize like oh it only takes one person to interfere but like it might take a couple people to, to help, help yeah right if it's something that the character isn't good at or there's a lot of opposition and that says something about the world that yeah. the, the fictional world uh, it is much easier to mess with each other than it is to help each other right Well, something you want to see happen and how you design for that. If one of the things you mm -hmm. want to see happen is that you want for characters to put themselves accidentally in jeopardy, but players to do it by choice, mm -hmm. to create niches for other characters to shine. Right. That's a great opportunity for a player dynamic that is cooperative among the players, but is sort of not totally cooperative among the characters in which the wizard is like, well, I'm sure this is always fine. And the thief is like, I don't think it is. And the wizard player says, well, yeah, but I'm going to do the thing where I'm going to, I have these dice I have to get rid of, these penalties or whatever that I'm basing this off of adventures, which is a game I have, but yeah. is that I have certain 
hostile dice I have to get rid of. And so I'm going to say that there is a trap here and I'm in danger of setting it off. You who know what you're doing to disarm traps, this is your chance to save me. Go right. ahead and rescue me, right? Because I'm just going to toss one or two dice. So if it doesn't go well, it's not a big deal. Right. But now we're both being active. I think a really concentrated example of playing with these yeah. um, dynamics is in Swords Without Master. So Swords Without Master is a sword and sorcery, very light touch um, mechanically game. And there is a GM, there's an overplayer, and then everyone else plays rogues who are the champions and the heroes who have no masters and go off yeah. and have barbarian... I say rogues in kind of a Conan yeah. Ronin kind of style. Yeah. yeah, the Conan sense of rogue, not the D&D sense of rogue. But there's different phases that the game goes through, and in each phase actually has a slightly different alignment of character and player ability to interact. And it's kind of coded by who's holding the dice. There's one pair of dice, and whoever's holding them has the ability to roll them, and certain things can't happen until they are rolled. So if you are holding the dice and I'm the overplayer and Jenny's character is in trouble, the Hydra is coming after you know, her barbarian mm -hmm. princess or whatever, I can keep on putting her in more and more peril and she keeps on narrating how her character is struggling against this giant threat and you have the power. Right, neither one of them can actually win that combat. Right, until yeah. you decide to roll those dice and we kind of see what the result of those dice are and that tones the rest of the conversation. Right. So as a player, if you want to see, and I've had this happen in play, where if one player wants to see the GM have to stretch and, <laughs> and find more and more creative ways of threatening them, they just hold those dice and stare at you as until you get to like a place, okay, that's cool enough. That's what I wanted to see. But then as a player, and I might be threatening you, and you're like, yeah, come on, bring it, bring it. And then once I threaten someone else is finally when you go like, okay, cool, I'm going to roll the dice. <laughs> right. And that's one phase of play. And a different phase of play, the player's ask each other, hey, show me how your barbarian princess overcame the great Hydra at the gates. Right. And then they just get to show off. They just get to tell you. Um, and then they come back and like, okay, cool. So show me how you raised the ghost ship from the depths of the sea. Because our goal here is to get on the ghost ship and sail to the island or whatever it is. In the service of moving the story along and finding out what happens the players all get to ask each other to show off. Where in the previous phase, the players were seeing each other struggle and slip and reveal their character and how they deal with adversity. Right. 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 So going through the different phases of that game actually realign player and character interests depending on what phase of the story you're in, basically. Right. Yeah, it's such a terrific example. How it breaks itself up into those phases, enabling it to both be about all those phases, but not having to make it so that those phases interact in a way that would be right. ugly or muddle the themes if or all, that stuff. If all of the... If the entire game had the ability to do all of those things at the same time and right. you had to pick and choose moment to moment, it would be a mess. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it would be impossible to keep straight. So the fact that on the design level that it's structured into the different scenes, this scene works like this, this scene works like this, this scene works like this. They use the same language, but they're slightly different. And there is a learning curve to running the game and kind of mentally being able to keep track of the changes. But once you have that down, it makes what could be a total mess very clear. So in design, looking at things like the Apocalypse World Help and Hinder, the structure and phases of Swords Without Master, the implicit and explicit mechanics in something like, like a D&D &D or a Shadowrun, the ways to think about how this, I think, can impact character development is not just through characters helping each other, players helping each other reveal their characters as foils, 
but by having the game be thematically tight, having the game mm-hmm. have a thematic statement and not being a game about everything, but so that we understand what the game's themes are about and what kind of is on or off topic. In my opinion, often as explicitly as possible, but also with an aura of implicit themes around it and how the things are talked about and what the art is like, what the game says is good and what the game says is bad and how that relates to, for example, our daily lives. So that in D&D, killing a monster is... It's just fine. And you say, well, was that the last dragon? Oh, <laughs> well, we maybe didn't want to do that. There's so much of this, I think, that we can bring in from other games in Playcraft that games either often assume or often presume that players are assuming. How you interpret mechanics to character development or that character development is something that will happen in addition to play. Sure. And sometimes that's fair, depending on if you're in a well-trod genre or you're obviously a descendant of another game or whatever it is. But there's a lot of playcraft notion, stuff that would sometimes be called filthy advice or <laughs> or feckless advice or just advice or whatever it is. This is where the, this stuff is really meaningful, I think, are things that you can use as a player that you as a designer are explicitly putting into the text and putting into the book or putting into the rules or into the setting that are only lightly mechanized. Like, for example, the phases in Swords Without Master, they're not so deeply robustly mechanized right in the sense that like we have four different D20s for it and there are, we've yeah. got different miniatures for this and different miniatures for that any right, of that kind of yeah. stuff, right? There are variations on one core dynamic. Right. So that even if you have a, a fairly common strong core and the themes are passing through that, then the themes that you're putting into the mechanism that are coming out the other end of the players that are mm-hmm. passing through the prism of the mechanism, what you portray at the, at the beginning, the light that you shine on the prism is super important. The kind of advice that you say, players, be mindful of this. Players are, including the GM and including non-GM players, are playing a design role at the table in an RPG. Mm-hmm. Not of the game, but of the experience. The big example I use, and I think this is worth putting in the text of a lot of RPGs, is that character creation almost never stops at the beginning of the game. Sure, yeah, Because yeah. the characters, as they learn stuff, or as they gain skill points, or as they mm-hmm. succeed and fail, will show you things about what they want and what they're doing, or ask you questions that you have to answer that say, boy, yeah, yeah do, I, do I kill the last dragon? I don't know. I think it's a pretty common experience, right, where you make a character, you play one the first session or whatever, and at the end, whether you you say like, oh, I actually want to change something, pretty common, I think, to do a play, and then at the end of the session, if you're like, oh, I actually don't need points in the skill, I'm going to change it, like that kind of thing. Right, right. But that's, I think, an outgrowth of you play for a session and go, oh, so that's what this character is about. (laughs) Oh, my thief actually does have this uh, scrap of honor to them. So that's cool. I learned that. And that's part of generating that character. Yeah. As a design, it's worth noting that despite word count or despite how many words you may have to put on it or, or whatever, but it's okay to talk about this stuff in not only the design phase for yourself, to really consider this stuff, I think it's important, but to put it into the text of the game. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have a rule that says you can change your skills after the first session, you learn something, mm-hmm. right? Just even about how the game works, whatever, and you go, you can go ahead then and respend those skill points. But you find that everybody's doing that. Yeah. There's a point which you want to consider whether or not that, may, just make that an official part of the game. Yeah. Kind of having declarative statements to players about how to approach the game Mm -hmm. like is that a rule i don't know like if it's important you should put it in the game you know if it is important to the game to say you are a unified party and you are going to be facing threats and you need to work together in max of the mummy kings i say there is no backstabbing that's just not what the game's about and there's no mechanical underpinning for doing things that are about trying to steal from each other or backstab other people in the party that game could be about that and there's a part in the design phase where i was trying to figure out if it could support that as well as the main thrust of play Mm -hmm. and then i determined that it couldn't so rather than trying to put in some kind of like 
blockage mechanism or something. It's just right. like, uh, yeah, you can't do that in this game. Or you can narrate that you do it, but there's no there there. There's no points yeah. to spend. There's no tokens to move around. It's just a void when you try to do these certain behaviors. So I consider that a rule. It's kind of a, a, a negative space rule in that here's the rule. And what enforces that rule is that there are no rules I was to gonna support say, it. A part of the rule is there will be no more rules forthcoming about this area. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. I am at patreon.com slash wordwill, and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just... 